Well, good morning and welcome one more time. My name is uh, Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter. Two things. I just got to say, um, there was a person who came up after 9.15 worship and said, hey, Dirk, there's a woman on the corner of uh, the street where I drove in, homeless, looks like she needs some help. Can I like put a care package together. And so we just like started assembling all kinds of things to like hand to her after church and like figure out what those next steps are. And so I just want to say like, you're a weird church. This wasn't the first time something like that has happened. And I love it. I love that it wasn't the first time. It won't be the last time that something like that has happened. And that's just, that is so cool. We have a saying around here that says, you matter to us, you matter to God. And what better way of saying that than uh, delivering a care package to someone on the corner. It's just so cool. Um, the other thing is that we want to tell our community that we love them and God loves them. God cares. Um, so we're handing out and mailing out these postcards that say the, the launch tailgate on September 9th. On the back, there's a voucher for a free meal from one of the food trucks that we have for the food truck rally here next weekend. Um, if you're here today, good for you. A pat on the back. Love that. Maybe you're watching online or listening online. This isn't for you per se. This is for you to hand to somebody who isn't yet here, if you catch my drift, right? That's how this works. So we've got stacks of these at the starting point desk after church today, after worship. Go ahead, grab a few of them, talk to the starting point person. Um, she'd love to have that conversation with you and to hand them out to your friends and family, especially if you're in college. Like, you don't have to ask the question, do you have a church home? No, they're transplanted. They're from maybe across town, across the country, across the world. Who knows? But grab a few of these, start handing them out to people and say, hey, my church is buying you lunch and it's food trucks. So you know it's awesome. Okay. New series, or uh, returning series called New Wine that we're coming back to. Uh, new Wine is all about the new wine, new season, new change that God is making in your life. And, and that's the question of the series is how do we change? Last week we heard about God's amazing love for us and how it changed Zacchaeus and God's love changes you too. Today we're going to hear about the setbacks in life, the struggles, the defeats, the difficulties, the delays, everything that comes up, those setbacks and how God uses those to shape us, to form us, sometimes to press us and crush us, to bring about new wine in our lives too. So to start off, to kick off thinking about what some of the, the change could be or some of the setbacks that you have in your life. I figure I'd go first. I've got a long list, all kinds, all kinds of setbacks. I remember when this church was meeting in a school cafetorium, we were on a week-to-week -week lease and we didn't know like what was coming up. One time the doors were locked and I was just confident. I'm like, oh, that's it. Shut the whole thing down. Like we had a pretty good run of a year. I, I developed this friendship with our real estate agent looking for a new, uh, new site, a new church building. And I got to know him so well over such a long period of time that we ended up starting a Bible study together. Nobody should know their real estate agent that well. <laughs> Setbacks happen. I can't tell you that when I went into uh, college, I thought, hey, you know, I want to leave the door open on maybe, I don't know, becoming a pastor someday. Like, that'd be crazy. So I took a Christian theology class and I got my first exam back. I thought I nailed it, which is the hardest part about this whole thing. I won't tell you my grade, but I'll say that I almost got two-thirds of things correct, uh, answers correct. It rhymed with A. Let's leave it at that. Uh, setbacks. Setbacks happen. 
I remember when I was starting to get uh, serious about paying off debt, maybe you guys are in that camp or, or you're going to be, and like the student loans, as the saying goes, they're around so often, your family members start to think of them as a pet. Uh, they just don't go away. They're always there. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to get serious about this and pay off those student loans that have been just kind of like pescally hanging around the house all the time. And in the same week that I decided that, major appliance broke down, transmission started going out, and then my wife says, Dirk, I think God is calling me to leave my full-time job and get a PhD in Ann Arbor full-time. And I'm like, message received. Setbacks. Setbacks happen. What's yours? We're going to hear a story this morning out of the Bible about some setbacks. Uh, But at the risk of of spoiling the dramatic tension, I don't want you to to miss what this story is about. So I'm just going to tell you. Uh, When you leave today, I hope you know that the Christian life It's not a straight shot to God, but it is a twisting, curving, winding highway that gets there eventually. You see, most of the time we think that life tends to turn out perfectly well, that life turns out like a a highway, like an interstate, I-80, through Iowa. And you can see for 100 miles in front and behind, there's nothing to see out the windows except cornfields. It's just a straight shot through the state, and it isn't. And that's what this story that we're going to read about is really saying. It isn't an I-80 highway through Iowa. It is a curving, twisting, winding M-22 Michigan's coastal highway that twists and turns all around Michigan's west coast, best coast. It'll get north eventually, but there are twists and turns and hairpins along the way that you might start to doubt. And in those moments, I hope that you're going to remember this story and come back to it and say God was faithful then. And hope that in those twists and turns, when you're heading south and you want to go north, I hope that you'll have the courage and the faith to say, no, no, just because I'm here, the best, God's best, is still yet to come. Let's, let's read this story together. It comes from Ruth chapter 1. You can find it in the Bible in front of you. The page number is in the, uh, is in the program. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me. Ruth starts off and... Um, I just want to give like a, a quick note. The name of the book is Ruth, but it's really about Naomi. Uh, Naomi is mentioned 27 times in the book of Ruth. Ruth is only mentioned 21 times. Most of the verses are following the action of Naomi. So we're going to kind of follow this story and see how it plays out through Naomi, not Ruth, because she's mentioned a lot more times. And if you stick around to the end, there might be, mentally, there might be a twist at the end that you might be uh, expecting or ready for, hopefully, by now at Encounter, because we do that a fair amount. Verse 1, starting off. In the days when the judges ruled, immediately off the bat, it's bad news. The book of Judges is the previous book of Ruth. And in the book of Judges, there's a lot of them. Othniel, uh, Ehud, Shamgar, Jephthah, Samson, Deborah. There's a bunch of them. And almost all of the judges uh, ruled over particular tribes in Israel. Only two of them, uh, Deborah and Gideon, I believe it was, ruled or or commanded coalitions of multiple tribes. I, I just want to see... When the author starts off the book of Ruth and says, when the judges ruled, it's really like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like nobody ruled. Nobody was in charge. It was divisive. It was fragmented. It was a bad time in Israel's history. 
In fact, one commentator went so far as to say, this is such a bad time. It was probably the lowest point in Israel's history so far. No one was in charge. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. This uh, commentator went on to say that uh, this was a time in history where there was these violent invasions into Israel. There was spiritual drift. It was civil war. And there was rampant lawlessness. It was a bad time in history. Naomi, of course, has no, uh, she has no choice as to when her story is going to be told or when she is going to be born. And these are just awful things that happened to her that caused these setbacks. Maybe you can relate. And we think, okay, judges ruling, no one ruling. That's a bad point in history. Probably can't get worse than that. Next line. There was a famine in the land. Perfect. Heap that on. We're going to see that the story takes place in the city of Bethlehem. Names are super important in the book of Ruth. Every name has a significant meaning. Bethlehem in Hebrew that this was written in and the language that they spoke literally translates to the house of bread. So there's a famine in the house of bread. You're like, this is not a great time to be alive. Also, this is just a Bible uh, pro tip for you. When you're reading the Bible, hopefully on your own, not just on Sundays, but you come across a famine. This is important because every time a famine is mentioned within these pages of the Bible, it's a bad spot to be, but God always shows up. So, so we've got this story, it's a famine. You're like, okay, this is bad. We're twisting and we're turning. We may be heading south, but, but like God's best is still yet to come. We're, we're coming into this and it's bad, but we're also hopeful. Uh, we continue on in the story. Okay, there's a famine, the judges, no one ruled. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Uh, now, so, uh, camera kind of was following family, nuclear family of four. Is Elimelech is the dad's name. Naomi is the one that we're following. And then two sons whose names we'll get to later. Not very important at this point in the story. This nuclear family moves from Israel, from Bethlehem, the city, over to Moab, a, a different, a foreign nation entirely. Now, I think like, that's important to point out on the one hand, just because it shows how bad things were in Israel. Like, things have to be so bad that you would, you would be willing to give up your family, familiarity. You'd, you'd be a, a, a give up um, everything that you really knew and loved about that place. You'd give up jobs, maybe, because things were so awful. You'd rather leave the protection of your own people and citizenship, and you'd go to a different country. Moab is not far away. It's maybe 20, 30 miles away from Bethlehem. But it's like the psychological distance of Moab, this place where Yahweh is not worshipped. God is not worshipped. It's different. God lives pagan kind of country altogether. And they're choosing that over Israel. I, I just want to like point out, it's not a huge geographical move. It's like moving from Detroit to Windsor, Canada. And I realize in this analogy, Detroit is the promised land and Canada is like the pagan heathless place, but like the shoe fits. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just messing around. I can't. Oh boy. Um, that's Moab. That's where they're going. I just like setback after setback in Naomi's story so far. And you think it's probably not going to get worse than this, right? Well, buckle up. Verse three. Now Limelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. I, I wouldn't wish 
widowhood on anybody, especially not a woman living in a foreign place where the judges ruled in a time of a famine. It's bad. But names, remember, are significant, and Elimelech isn't just the name of her husband. Elimelech also means, my God is king. So church, I don't think it's a stretch to say that for Naomi, after setback and setback piled up, and she is now living not in Moab, but in setback city, and things are stacking up so much that by the time Elimelech dies, it's not just her husband who died, it could also be her faith who is di- that is dying as well. My God is king is now dead. And she's, if, she, if she has a faith, it might be holding on by a thread. Maybe two threads. Two threads named Malon and Kilion, her sons. And you know where this is heading in verse 4. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. By the way, uh, Oprah Winfrey, the media mogul, you know, you guys, everybody knows Oprah. Um, Her birth name is actually Orpah on her birth certificate. And it's just, people just mispronounce it so often, they started calling her Oprah and she just kind of went with it over time. That has nothing to do with anything. Um, We got Orpah and Ruth and they lived there for about 10 years. Both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband and a thread of a faith that may now be escaping her. A setback. It's bad. It's really bad. So bad that when the author just kind of throws out that they lived there married for 10 years, the temptation is to think That's a little while, but in the end, that might be an insignificant throwaway detail. Church, there are no insignificant throwaway details in the story that God is telling. There are no insignificant details that are throwaways in this story or in yours. In this case, when the storyteller says that they lived there for about 10 years, he is kindly suggesting that during that 10-year marriage before those sons died, it's not that they couldn't, it's not that they wouldn't have kids, it's that they couldn't have kids. Uh, Today, it's different. We have to acknowledge that today, a couple's married for 10 years. Uh, How long is a couple together before you ask them if they're going to have kids? Answer, never. You just don't do it. You just don't do it at all. This is just, this isn't a biblical thing. This is Dirk's wisdom. Don't do it. The answer is the same. It's like, how far along uh, could a woman be before asking if she's pregnant? You just, no, don't, just don't do it. You could look like you just stuffed a watermelon up your shirt in the parking lot on the way in. And I'm like, oh, you're pregnant. That's crazy. I have no idea. You just, you don't mention it. Back then, back then, uh, kids weren't just uh, legacy a way of passing on the family traditions. This is your social safety net as well. They took care of you when you're older. Who, who's going to take care of Naomi now that her sons are dead? She has no grandsons. I mean, no kids. So 
of her own anymore, and she's older, she says, so she can't have any more kids. There's feelings of inadequacy or maybe grief. There's misplaced feelings maybe of, of shame. But, but there's also, because of the safety net thing, there's also just good old-fashioned fear. What's going to happen to me when, when I can't provide for myself anymore? It's been so long. This is how bad it got that she decides, I might as well move back after being away for a decade. I might as well leave Moab, this place that now feels like home, and go, go back to the house of bread. Maybe there's bread there now. Go back to Bethlehem. And so she sits uh, Orpah down and Ruth down and says, uh, girls, daughters-in-law, um, I don't think you should come back with me. This place is not yours. It's not for you. You're a, you're a foreigner there. There might be something for me there. I don't know. You should stay here. You're young enough. Find somebody. You can still reboot, start your life over again in Moab, in this place, among your people. And Orpah says, okay. <laughs> and like goes. Don't name your daughter Orpah. She won't go with it anyway. Um, Ruth though, Ruth, man, Ruth has this beautiful line uh, that a lot of you probably used at some point in your wedding or maybe you're going to a wedding this summer and, uh, and you might incorporate this. Uh, it's just this extraordinary line. So often in weddings, I don't have the heart to tell couples when they choose it that it's actually not between a husband and wife, but a daughter and a mother-in-law, which kind of makes this funny like marriage dynamic. Nevertheless, it's a beautiful line when mom Naomi says, Ruth, don't come with me. And Ruth looks back at her mom and she says, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And Ruth goes with her. It's a beautiful line of a daughter-in-law's fidelity in the journey. It's not about Ruth, though. It's about Naomi. She gets back to town. And well, let's just listen to the story. When they arrived in Bethlehem, this is Ruth and Naomi now, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Names are important. Not sure if you caught that. Naomi means pleasant, kind. Can this be pleasant? Don't call me pleasant, she told them. Call me bitter, Mara. Because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter, Mara. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord Almighty, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Because that's what I am, where I am. In these hairpin turns, no longer heading North. I want you to see the, the dynamic that just happened. I want you to see what just happened in this. Because if you're in that place right now, in that setback city, you get it. You're like, no, this is instinctual. I understand where she's coming from. But I want you to see it because some of you might not be in setback city yet. You might not be in that place yet, but you will. Like if life is long enough, if God blesses you with a long enough life, you'll see it at some point. And at that point that you'll look around and you'll see so much, so many setbacks, you'll start to see like, like car or house repairs coming down. You'll start to see relationships come to an end that you thought 
that you would have for a lifetime. You'll start to see marriage endings and friends around you or God help you, maybe yours. You'll start to see these things start to unfold and you'll look around and you'll say, no, no, the common thread around all of these things happening in my life isn't them or there or this place. The common thread is you, God. You done this to me. You let this happen. You caused this. And if you didn't, I don't care what the difference is. It's your fault, God. She turns from the horizontal. She turns vertical. Have you been there? Like if, if not, I think you would be wise to hold open the possibility that God may bring you there at some point. And when he does, may you not delude yourself into thinking that the Christian life is a straight shot Highway 180 through Iowa, but it's a twisting, turning, winding road along the lakeshore that goes through every bluff, forest, coastal town in Michigan, and it'll get north eventually, but on those hairpin turns, you need to be reminded that the best, God's best, is still yet to come. Thursday, I'm sitting in this guy's living room and I don't know him all that well, but after talking to him for, I don't know, three hours, I feel like I know him maybe better than I know most other people. He's uh, yeah, it's probably late 70s. He's just, he has a lot of perspective on, on what's happened uh, in the past. He was a pastor for a lot of years his whole life really up until recently. And he, he was telling me about this time, this season in life. He's 55 years old. And I'm, I'm trying to uh, put this correctly. He's at the very, very top of his, I don't know, ministry effectiveness. Like, like he's at the top of his game. He's crushing it. Uh, just uh, from a worldly perspective, he is leading a mega church in St. Louis, $9 million budget, huge staff, tons of people counting on him. I mean, just like, whoa, and, and loving every minute of it. And two things happen, two hairpin turns. His wife, whose career had been delayed for some time, had just recently been offered not a dream job, but, but like a good job in Michigan. She takes it in the meantime to explore it. She's commuting four days a week there, three days a week here. He's still leading the church when the second hairpin turn happens. Uh, their grown daughter, 30 years old, because of some of the health issues, health setbacks, cannot take care of her newborn child. So now he's 55. He's at the top of his game professionally. Uh, lots of people counting on him. His wife is living in Michigan half of the time and he's caring for a newborn at, the, at, the, at home. And he leans into me and he says this, this wisdom, right? He goes, Dirk, if we were writing the script of our lives, we would not have written this. And I'm like, no kidding. <laughs> We would not have written 
this. It's setback city. I, I hope on the twisting, winding hairpin turns that is M22 heading north, that is your life and the story that God is telling in your life. I hope that you'll remind yourself and those you are with that the best is still, God's best is still yet to come. I hope that you'll also see the signposts of hope along the way. The story of Naomi is that she gets to Bethlehem and as it turns out, there's this tradition called a kinsman redeemer. It's a tradition safety net for those who've slipped through the safety net. A relative is supposed to step in and marry the widow of the relative that is now deceased, thereby providing for her and her family, uh, marrying Ruth and providing for her and Naomi. There's a kinsman redeemer named Boaz, and Boaz is kind, and Boaz is generous, and Boaz is a protector, and Boaz watches over Ruth. And we think in chapter 2 that Boaz is going to propose to Ruth, and he doesn't propose. How many of you been in the place where he doesn't propose? Don't put your hand up. Don't put your hand up. It's a signpost of hope, but then nothing happens. And chapter 2 just kind of ends. And it leads into chapter 3, and, and, and the romantic tension starts to rise, and this plan unfolds, and it starts to look again like they might get together, and then there's a, there's a kinsman redeemer that's closer than Boaz and it's like, well, forget about him. Let's just, you know, not approach him and just go like, move on with this thing. We got our Boaz. Let's do this. And Boaz, who's, who's impeccably honest, says, no, no, no. We have to do the right thing. We have to give him the opportunity. And everybody reading the story is like, no, don't do it. Step back again. And in this time, it wasn't just you were born in a bad time in history, in a famine. You couldn't do anything about that or the death of a husband or sons. You couldn't do anything about that. At this time, it's like, no, no, no. It's setback city now because you're causing it. Your own righteousness, your own goodness and good action is causing it. And there's something in me from a very early age that's like, no, when you do the right thing, you ought to be rewarded. And in this case, you do the right thing and it causes another setback. Come on. Exactly. Because the storyteller wants you to know that the life of faithfulness to God and obedience before him is not a straight line. It is fraught with setbacks and struggles, with defeats and delays and difficulties. It is a winding road that eventually will take you north. But until you get to that place, church, God's best is still yet to come. Don't forget about that. It's still yet to come. And sometimes, before we make it north... We get to see something good happen along the way. Let's go to chapter four in this story. This is how, this is how the book of Ruth ends in verse 17. In verse 17, we have a wedding with Boaz and Ruth as marriage is happily ever after ensues and there's even a baby. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, a grandson, of course. Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And it just kind of ends this way. He was the father of Jesse, and Jesse, of course, the father of David. 
And it doesn't need to be said. But I'll say it anyway. David was the best king ancient Israel ever had. Finally, somebody who ruled. And David and Jesse, Obed, Ruth, and Naomi, of course, were in the family line of the best king the universe ever had, Jesus Christ himself, the road headed north at the end of the day. I love that story. I love that story because of the hope that it provides. I love that story because it shows that all of these little details along the way aren't trivial after all, aren't throwaway after all. All the setbacks along the way, God didn't just work in spite of them. God God worked through them. God worked because of them. Every detail that happened in the story of Naomi was a detail that God was using to crush her, to press her, was a setback, was a struggle, was a defeat, was a delay, was a difficulty to bring out God's best in her life and literally to change the world, church, through her. I love what that story means so that when you go out of this place, when you have a conversation in your car on the way home that you think is trivial or insignificant or a throwaway, and God says, there are no throwaway details in this story that I'm telling. It all has eternal significance. Caring for a mother-in-law, a widower mother-in-law has a significant, eternally significant detail. Uh, uh, Marriage, babies, Gleaning a field, begging, work, all of it, every conversation, every relationship, every interaction, God says, they're all have eternal significance. Do we act like that? What if we did? When you go today, remember, Remember that the Christian life is not a straight shot, but a winding road. Fraught with setbacks, struggles, delays, defeats, and difficulties. But until you meet God face to face, his best is still yet to come. Church, could I ask you to stand? I've got one more thing to say about the story. Because church, I've preached on this thing a lot of times on the book of Ruth. And I've never noticed this detail until this week. And I think it changes everything. Let's go back to verse 17 in chapter four. Let's just read it one more time. That the women living there gathered around Naomi and said that Naomi has a son whose name is Obed, father of Jesse, father of David. We all know how important that is. Naomi has a son, not Ruth, not the the namesake of the book that you would expect, but Naomi. Why wouldn't they name the book Naomi? She's the one with setbacks. She's the one with delays. She's the one with struggles. She's the one defeated. Naomi is all of us. Why don't you name it after all of us? Why don't you name the book after Naomi? I think the author of the book knew 
that Naomi is all of us. And the author of the book also knew that we don't need, a, we don't need another story about all of us. We need a story about the one and only Savior of all who shows up on the journey, who shows up on the hairpin turns, on the winding road, on the twists and turns around life's journey, who shows up and says, wherever you go, church, I will be with you. If you go, if you stay, I am there with you. That's why you call me Emmanuel, which means God is with me. Names are important, church. Jesus is with you on the journey. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will always be there. Would someone please say amen? Amen. That's why they named it Ruth. They knew who God was and wanted you to know too. That pastor friend, he turns and looks at me having this conversation in Michigan so I kind of know what happened I knew a lot of what happened and he said Dirk I never we never would have written this script for our lives but what God wrote was infinitely better let's pray Our gracious God, you're telling a story through our lives and there are no insignificant details. All of it is eternal significance. God, take our setbacks and struggles, our delays, our defeats, our difficulty. God, and tell your story of glory through it all. May our setbacks, as well as our lives, point to you. Jesus Christ, in your name we pray. Amen.